Our scripture this morning again is James 1, 19 through 27. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Whoa, that was cool. Um, great to be together and loved Dr. Wood's message last week on pursuing unity and pursuing maturity together. And now we jump back into the book of James. And uh, I'm going to echo what Mark said a couple minutes ago, but I don't know if you've noticed this, but James doesn't mess around, does he? Like, James does not mess around. James is all about faith in action. I, would, I think the summary verse of James is verse 22. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. He wants us to do what the word says. And I, we, the first week I spent looking at verses 21 uh, to 25, so we won't cover those today. But that's the heart of this, this book, is live this out in your daily lives. And that's a challenge. I mean, I was thinking, like, that's a challenge for those of us who um, like to think in terms of spiritual experiences, like, oh, I had a great time in worship, and the Spirit's been, been talking to me a lot lately, moving all, all these ways. James would be like, that's awesome. How are you living your daily life? Um, and he challenges those of us that love to merely focus on theology. You know, like, I had a great Bible study this week. I had this conversation with a friend on substitutionary atonement this week. It was beautiful. <laughs> James would be like, I love that. And how are you living out your day-to-day -day walk with Jesus? Or those of us who focus on practices and disciplines. I'm going to church every week. Uh, I'm in a three small groups. I'm fasting. I'm having quiet times. I have giving. And James would be like, I love all that. And how are you living out your walk with Jesus in the day-to-day moments of life in the tangible, practical ways. And this passage is uh, really a good example of that. Um, I'm going to be focusing in on verses 26 uh, and 27. And what James gives us there is a litmus test for what uh, he calls religion, true religion, 
and he's going to give us actually three litmus tests. What does true religion look like? And um, I'll show you these litmus tests. I'll, I'll put them up uh, if this works, and it does. Oh, you weren't supposed to see that first one. Let me try that again. Okay. Now, just to let you know, James uses that word religion three times in this passage. He's using that in a positive sense. I say that because in our day and age, we often use that in a negative sense. Even in the church, we say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? Or outside of the church, people will say, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual, right? We mean that in sort of an empty religious sort of way. James is not using it in that way. He's using it in the, in the positive, true religion, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. He's talking about faith in action. How does your devotion to the Lord Jesus play out in your daily lives? And um, he's painting a picture of what that life ought to look like. And he's doing that, I think, in verse 26 and 27, so that we might examine ourselves. And that is what today is all about, just to let you know. Today is a day for self-examination. And you're like, really, self-examination on Super Bowl Sunday? Like, <laughs> come on, I'm not ready for this. Um, but this is what we're going to do today. Because James says in this passage, there are people who think they're religious and they're deceiving themselves. And then there's religion that God our Father truly accepts. And so today is a day to just step back. And that's what I want you to do for the next 30 minutes, is step back and look at your life. And examination is such a consistent biblical theme. Paul will regularly say, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you are truly in the faith. And so today is a day for examination. It's going to kind of be like going to the dentist today, okay? I know that you're excited about that. Easy. Sorry, my dad's a, I'm a, I'm a DK. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, you think being a PK is hard. Imagine being a DK dentist kid. That's what that means. But you know what it's like. You go to the dentist and your, your friends say, how are your teeth? You're like, I think my teeth are fine. I think they're fine. And then you, then you go. And you get those x-rays, and now it's all computerized. Back, back when my dad was still practicing, right, you get those films, and they put them up in the light. It reflects on the back. You get to see what is actually happening uh, in those teeth of, of yours. And, and today is a day for us um, to do that, okay? So I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, James is going to give us three specific litmus tests for examining, am I really living out the faith? And here they are in verse uh, 26 and 27. He it calls us to examine our speech. Uh, he calls us to examine our care for the vulnerable. And third, he calls us to examine our pursuit of purity in a world that is not always pure. So this is what we're going to do today, is examine our lives along these three grids. And um, before we do that, there's something really important. Maybe the most important thing I'm going to say today, I think, is this. He's going to describe a certain kind of life in these three sets of behaviors. The danger, as we hear this, would be to, to think of this as like a do-it-yourself kind of religion, right? This, okay, here's these ways I'm supposed to live, and now I need to embark on this self-improvement plan. And if you think of it that way, you're going to feel one of two things today. Either you're going to feel a lot of guilt and shame, okay, because you're going to look at some of these things, you're like, oh, my life is so far short of this, and that's how I always feel. I come to church, and I read, open this book, and it, always, it shows me I'm a C-minus Christian, and I knew I was a C-minus Christian, and I'm going to always be a C-minus Christian. You'll walk away just kind of resigned. One more example of how I'm not living up to God's standards. 
Um, or the other option is you, you get inspired by this, right? You're like, okay, I know I've got the, the action plan and I'm going to embark on these steps and I'm going to go do this. And uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure that God is wanting either of those things from us. And so what, what was really interesting to me as I read this passage is to notice that this passage is framed in family language. Look at how it starts in verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, literally my beloved is what James actually says, my beloved brothers and sisters. He's going to say some things, but he says, remember, you guys are brothers and sisters. You're family, and you are so loved by your father. Don't forget whose you are. And then look at how it ends, verse 27. Religion, look at how God is described. Religion that God, who? God, our Father, accepts. He doesn't have to say that there. He can just say God. He's saying, remember, God, the creator, is your Father who loves you. So you are in the family of God now. This is how James is framing this conversation. God loves you. God chose you. God has adopted you into his family, your brothers and sisters, and he has forgiven us. He's put his spirit inside of us. He is forming his character within us, and here's the goal of life, and all of, really, the New Testament's ethics is all this. What is the goal of life? Bear the family resemblance. Become like your dad. Okay, that is, that is the call. God says, be holy because... I am holy. This is how we should think about the life that God calls us into. We've been brought into his family, and we're called to begin, to, first of all, to, to know who our father is, to enjoy him, to worship him, to see who he is, and then to become more and more like our dad. Um, just last week, my youngest daughter, eight year old, years old, she came out uh, from my room dressed in some of my shoes. She's clocking around, you know, and you all know when little kids with size twos get into a, a man's shoes size 11. She walks out in daddy's shoes. Daddy, what do you think of my shoes? Oh, they're perfect, Joes. They fit you just perfect. I love them. Great. Or sometimes they'll put on a tie and, and walk out. And we all know the example of like kids dressed up in their parents' clothes. That's actually a pretty good picture of what we're invited into in the gospel. Who's your dad? What's he like? How does he live? How does he act? Be like your dad. Become, dress up in your dad, and over time, you will grow into your father's character. That is what we're invited into. It's not a do-it-yourself. Here's your behaviors. Make it happen in your own power. No. Look at your dad. What's he like? Act like your dad. Bear the family resemblance. That is the call of the New Testament. Okay, so that's how I want you to hear these, is this is who God is. Now, what would it look like to be like your heavenly father? Okay, so let's take these on one at a time. First, let's examine our speech. Verse 26. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is still pretty good. Um, excuse me, worthless, excuse me. Let's talk about our speech, okay? But before we talk about our speech, let's talk about our Father's speech. How does your Heavenly Father 
talk. We get a couple clues in this passage. Uh, Actually, look at verse 18 just before our passage. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It's his word, the gospel message spoken. That's the very thing that gave us spiritual life, new life in the first place. Look at uh, verse 25. The perfect law that gives freedom. God's laws that he spoke bring freedom to human beings. How does God speak? He created the universe through his word. His words are always true. They are always pure. They are always good. Sometimes they're words of warning. Sometimes they're words of comfort and hope and encouragement, but they are always right and true. And when Jesus Christ, God's son, comes into this world, how does he speak? How does Jesus speak? If I had a summary to describe how Jesus speaks, I'd say it this way. Jesus speaks exactly like his dad. He talks exactly like his dad. In fact, that's what he says. He says, I don't speak on my own, but the father who sent me commands me to say all that I have spoken. I talk just like my dad. Many of you with kids, you can remember when some of your kids were growing up, you'll hear that some idiom will come out of their mouth. You're like, oh, I know where that came from. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? I know exactly where that came from. But this is Jesus. He talks just like his dad. And so his words bring life and truth and grace and encouragement, sometimes warning, but always right and pure and good. I love reading the Gospels and just noting people's responses to the way Jesus speaks. There's lots of examples of it. My favorite one, I've told you this, I tell this often, but is uh, when he's in Jerusalem, his final week, and um, he's talking in front of the crowds, and the Pharisees are very upset. They send soldiers to come and arrest Jesus, right? The soldiers come back without Jesus. The Pharisees say, where's Jesus? And the soldiers respond this way, you don't understand. No one speaks the way this man speaks. I've never heard someone talk the way this man talks. Jesus would say, I'm just talking the way my father talks. And so the question for us is this, that we are part of God's family. Do we speak the way our father speaks? Do our words communicate truth and life and grace and encouragement and comfort and warning, all the ways that God speaks? Uh, James's focus, and we're going to get a whole chapter on the taming of the tongue. That's chapter three, so that's coming. But James's focus is on restraining harmful speech in particular, right? Look at verse 26 again. He uses this image, uh, those who consider themselves religious, religious, yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. That's a great image, isn't it? Uh, a, a bridle or a rein. We know what horses look like. You need to Keep a rein on your tongue. I was reading, I think I put, yes, I love this. One commentary put it this way. Uh, It's an image. Our tongues possess within themselves all the untamed vigor of a wild beast, like a horse that needs to be reined in. Um, Some of you have spouses whose tongues possess within themselves all the untamed vigor of a wild beast. Some of you are those people. Some of you have children that way or or coworkers, or bosses, right, or neighbors. You know what this looks like. James says, true religion is learning to exercise control over that tongue, to restrain it, 
so that you are in control of it. And James is especially concerned with angry speech, angry outbursts. Look at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, right? God gave us two ears, one mouth. That is a metaphor on your face. God gave you a metaphor on your face. Listen, listen, listen. Listen before you speak. And especially be slow with angry speaking. Those, those angry, we all know what that looks like. Be very slow with that. Why? This is, the, this is really the verse that hit me today, this week. Verse 20. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Literally, in the Greek, it runs this way. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's, that's like a verse to just sit with in silence for five minutes. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And some of you have learned this the hard way in this room. Some of, some of your most regrettable moments in life are words of anger that you spoke probably to someone you love deeply, um, but you cannot unspeak, right? That God can heal, but you know the regret of what this is. Um, but I was thinking about this. You know, anger um, anger's such a powerful thing, isn't it? Anger, it's a powerful emotion, uh, and it's, it's powerful to be able to speak words of anger into a moment that hit their mark. Okay, we all know what that's like. Uh, and it, it can, anger produces results. Like anger, anger gets things done. It, it really does, it, it can produce results. And I, I'll just tell you as a dad, so my kids right now are 12, 10, and 8. I've got three girls, if you didn't know that. Uh, all on the same birthday, if you didn't know that either. It's kind of a fun story. Um, you can ask me about that later. But, um, you know, they're, they're in a, we're in a season where things are, I would say, things are getting chippy. That's fair. <laughs> things are getting chippy at times at home. And um, usually with each other, but it could be towards mom and dad as well. And sometimes things will get, just move from chippy towards chaos. And, and just everything that's coming out is just, and, and I'm, they're still young, young enough where if dad gets big and if dad gets angry, I can actually step into that and bring anger and I can make the chaos stop. Like I can make the bad sounds go away. <laughs> like I, I, they're not teenagers. I think when they're teenagers, maybe you lose that, that ability, but dad's anger can still shut things down and make the chaos stop. Like, it, it, my anger still produces the result I'm looking for in that moment. But I'm learning, but what it doesn't produce is the righteousness of God. It's not producing the righteousness of God in me, and it's actually not producing the righteousness of God in them. It is producing silence, um, but it's not producing the righteousness of God. Um, I was thinking this week about um, one of my favorite scenes in um, Saving Private Ryan. Most of you have seen that movie. And um, most of you know uh, that story. 
Uh, it's a story of Captain John Miller, right? Tom Hanks is playing him, and he's leading this uh, group on a mission to save this private, get him out of the war. And I think, I think Captain Miller is an amazing leader. I don't know how you feel about him, um, but he's, I think he's amazing. And uh, they, the, 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 the group of soldiers, they have this running bet of they're wondering what his job was before. You know, everyone just kind of got thrown into World War II, and no one knows what he did. So they've got this pool that's up to like 300 bucks. Like, I wonder what the captain was doing before. Uh, you know, he, he did this. So um, you probably know the scene I'm thinking of, but there's, there's a scene where everything erupts in chaos with the group. They've just lost a couple of their men, and one of the guys is like, I'm, this is a, I'm out with this mission. I'm walking away, and, and chaos, like, ensues in the group. Literally, guns are, like, drawn on each other, and they're yelling at each other, and, and the, whole, the whole group is just, it's about to just break apart. And the captain is watching this. And you would think in that moment, like, this is where the captain comes in with anger and authority and just brings order through his anger. And that's really, you think that's the only chance he has. Truth is, it probably wouldn't work in that moment. And you remember what he does? He just sort of steps back and is watching the chaos and thinking, what am I going to do? And rather than go big, he just speaks into the moment. He says, what's the, uh, what's the bet up to right now? And they're like, what? What's the bet? Like $300? Is that what it is? I'm a school teacher. Like, what? Yeah, I teach English composition in a small town high school. And he goes on for the next 30 seconds just to tell a little bit about his life back home and how he just wants to get home <laughs> to his wife. And it's this thoughtful word that just diffuses the moment. And the guy's like, I'll be doggone. He's a school teacher. And it produces actually what anger could never have produced in that moment. And James is calling us into that kind of restrained life. Anger produces a lot of things, but it does not produce the righteousness of God. And we have this God who gets angry from time to time, but who Paul says, but it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not the anger of God, it's his kindness and his grace and the mercy that is displayed on this cross. That is what led us all to repentance. That is who your dad is. So be your dad's kids. Examine your speech, James says. So that's the first one, first litmus test, our speech. Second, uh, second litmus test for what I'm calling true religion is our care for the vulnerable. Look at verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is what it looks like to, to see vulnerable people and, and to, to move towards them and care for them in their distress. Orphans and widows, uh, that represents in the first century the vulnerable of society. If you look at the Hebrew scriptures, uh, one, one commentator calls it the, the quartet of the vulnerable. I'll show you a passage that captures the quartet. This is Zechariah 7.10. Do not oppress, here the four are, the widow, the fatherless, that's the orphan, the foreigner, sometimes they'll say alien, or the poor. These are the quartet of the vulnerable in ancient society as they are today. And you have to remember in, in first century society or even before then, these are the helpless. These are the powerless. These are the vulnerable. There's, there's, no, there's no social welfare system. There's no safety net for these people, right? They are truly, 
truly vulnerable. And so James says, true religion, that God, and this is where he specifically mentions God as father, is to notice and look after the vulnerable among you. And before we consider our own engagement with the vulnerable, I want to ask you first, what is your father like? What is your father's heart towards these kinds of people? And if you've read the Hebrew scriptures, you know time and time again, our father is described as someone who has a particular heart for the vulnerable. Let me show you two examples from the Psalms. The Lord is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He's a big creator God, but look at this. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. He watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, or more succinctly, Psalm 68. He describes himself as a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. And we're so familiar with this description of God, we forget how unique that is. In the ancient world, all the other gods, all the other gods identify themselves with mighty warriors, with kings, with emperors, with the powerful, the the, the gods of, of, of warriors and power. And this God actually identifies himself with the needy and vulnerable of society. That is the first time a God ever associated himself with these kinds of people. It's utterly unique in religion at that time. And when Jesus, God's son, comes onto the scene, surprise, surprise, he looks a lot like his dad. And he spends a lot of his time with these kinds of people, those who are vulnerable, those who are outcast, right? Those who are not accepted in society. He also spends time with the rich and the powerful and the privileged. He does spend some time with them, but the majority of his heart and the majority of his ministry takes place among the vulnerable. Uh, That is where he has the most success (laughs) as well, is with those kinds of people who find in him uh, a unique compassion that they weren't finding in the religious leaders of their day. And so James would tell us, this is who your dad is. So what does true religion look like? It looks like having a heart that your dad has. And so that's what I would say is is first to say true religion is not necessarily, do I have some tangible ministry specifically to orphans and widows, though that's a fair question, but to ask yourself, does my heart move towards the vulnerable the way my father's heart moves towards the vulnerable? And does my life show a care for vulnerable people the way that my Lord Jesus' life showed a care for vulnerable people? And I'll just, just confess to you, of the three that we look at today, this is the one that for me was the most convicting. That as I look at my life, um, I realize it's quite easy the way where I live the way my life is already structured, the relationships I already have in place, it's pretty easy for me to spend actually all of my life not engaging with these kinds of people. And James would say, you might be deceiving yourself, right? It would be a weird thing to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Master. I just happen to not spend time with the people that he spent most of his time with. 
but I, I'm a follower of Jesus, you know. But like one of the hallmark features of his ministry is completely absent in my life. <laughs> right? That James would say, I, I think there's something off there. There's, 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 there's a miss there somewhere. So this is where I personally am most convicted. Um, the good news in this, I think, is uh, there's not a one-size-fits-all way to, to be faithful in this area, right? There's, um, there's not like this cookie-cutter way that this kind of life care for the vulnerable needs to look. Um, vulnerability has so many different forms and shapes these days, doesn't it? I made a list of some of the ones that come. Widows, of course. Orphans, those who are trafficked, those who are unhoused, those with disabilities, immigrants, foster youth, um, the lonely, the elderly. Um, I was hearing a story recently about a church that goes, visits. Um, there's two t- um, apartment towers on 19th Street, um, and they visit once a month, I think, is where they go. And they just knock on doors, and they just, there's a lot of older folks living in those, in those apartments, and they um, just hang out. You know, they just knock, hey, wanna, we'd love to just come in and say hi. And, and I was hearing a story from one of the young women who does that. And I think it's once a month. And I remember her saying, they would go back to certain people and that, like an older woman, the woman would say, this is the first conversation I've had since you came last month. That is vulnerability. <laughs> that is modern vulnerability. And so vulnerability looks like so many different things. And there's such a variety of ways to care um, for those who are vulnerable, right? There are kind of programmatic ways and, and structured ways to do that. Um, and um, I love watching how some of you are doing that. You know, we have some very structured ways of caring for certain people. We are caring, you know, we've got the shelter two doors down. Uh, we have those who are on the streets in our city. And there are, I will say, especially some men in this church, men in this room right now, that are giving their lives considerable time to people living on the streets. Um, there's certain, you know, kind of set things, Saturday breakfasts and, t- and events that we're throwing there. These are kind of programmed and structured ways. We just did the teen leadership uh, camp that some of you engage and help with some of those single moms. Um, some of you are doing strong families and bringing in kids into your homes for, you know, a week or a month at a time. Um, we are doing stuff at the cottage. So there's structured ways. Some of you, um, some of you are gifted in leadership and organization. So you're serving on boards of organizations that are trying to care for these people. These are all beautiful, structured ways to do this. But there's also a million non-structured, organic, just sort of relational things that happen in our lives that we can then step into and minister to. Uh, some of you have people on your street. There might be that, that, like that older woman that I described. She's actually not in an apartment. She's living on your street. She's lonely. She's on your street. Or you have friends and all of a sudden a divorce happens. And there's, there's relational breakdown. And you get to just step in and, and care in a, in a vulnerable moment. Um, some of you have children and, and you have a, one of their friends um, has a really wild family situation. And you get to step in and just kind of be a second home, you know, through the high school years or, or for, for a season. So there, there's, what's great is there's structured ways, um, there's unstructured ways to do this. Um, I love that we're embarking in this, this new year on this neighboring challenge that we're inviting you guys into. In February, the challenge is to just go do some prayer walks 
um, around, your, around your street, around your apartment complex. And um, that is a great opportunity to just be observant and noticing, God, where are the, where are the vulnerabilities um, in my neighborhood? Who are the vulnerable, uh, and however that is defined in my neighborhood? We, we, um, we're going to do that on Mondays as a family. Last Monday, it was pouring rain. Um, so instead, we made a map of our street. And I took the seven houses kind of on both sides of the street closest to us, and we made little boxes, and we s- tried to see how many of the names we could fill in of the 14 houses, um, 13 houses, because ours was easy to fill in. Um, and we started talking about what, the ones we know. What do we know about these families? Like, what, what do we think they're, they're struggling with? What are their challenges? And so th- that's a really sweet opportunity in a very organic way to start to think, how can we be ministering to the vulnerable. So it doesn't have to look a certain way, but I think the self-examination is this. Does, does my heart reflect my dad's heart for the vulnerable? And not just that, but does my life in some way reflect the life of Jesus? If I'm a Jesus follower, like is, can I, is there some way I see this playing? And there's going to be seasons, of course, where there's more and less, but that I think is the invitation to us. Okay, so we examine our speech, James says. We examine our care for the vulnerable. And then finally, uh, let's look at how this ends. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless as this. First, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then second, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So let me put these up again. True religion, restrained speech, care for the vulnerable, and I'll call this uh, the pursuit of purity. Um, You know, it's an election year, so I'll talk politics each week, most likely. Um, I do recall, I think it was Tim Keller one time, looking at these last two in verse 27, he made this comment, which I thought was thoughtful, care for the vulnerable and sort of like keeping yourself unstained from the world. He said, those are like stereotypically put in, in the two kind of political systems, like care for the vulnerable, that's like a stereotypical, like classic left concern, right? We care, um, you got programs for the, the poor and the needy, social concern, it's sort of a stereotypical left kind of concern. And the, the other one, pursuit of purity, is kind of a stereotypical right concern, safe families, right? Drug-free, crime-free cities, sexual purity. And, um, and I would say the first one, neither is good at the first one. Um, LAUGHTER but what I love is like these get kind of, in our political system, these kind of get pit against each other. And, and James is like, no, these, these are part of the same thing. Why? Because these are part of who our father is. Like our father cares for both of these things. That's what unites them. And we are all three of these things. And we want to be children of our father. What's our father like? He's this way. So let's consider this pursuit of purity. And again... Who is our dad? What's he like? <laughs> well, it almost feels funny to say it, but he is 100% committed to his own purity, <laughs> right? We, the, the Bible word is, is holy. He never flirts with sin and evil. He never coddles it. Um, he never, never cozies up to it. Um, he couldn't be further from it. He is 100% pure, unadulterated goodness. And this week I was picturing him like just this this stream, this, this river that is so pure, just this beautiful mountain pure flowing stream. 
And his call to us is, be holy because I am holy. Devote yourselves to me, God would say. Pursue me. Pursue a, a pure and simple devotion to me. Take in the clean, pure water that I offer you. And James, I, I was, James' images here are really strong. Look at that, like that word, at least in my NIV. Keep yourself from being polluted by the words. It's sort of a, it's a, just a, a dirty word, right? Um, in verse 21, he says, uh, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. There's, there's a pollution, there's, a, there's a, a filth that is so prevalent out there and prevalent inside of us. And he said, I want you to take that off. But there's a, a pollution that comes from the purity that God calls us into. Um, last week, and I wasn't here, um, we drove up to Santa Barbara um, to go camping and then came home Saturday night because the rain came down. But as we were, we were driving up on, on Friday, and I love that 101, the last stretch of the 101 along the water, but it had rained a lot on Thursday. So you got this beautiful sky, and you're looking out at the water, and it is just brown. You know, it's just all the runoff, um, all the bacteria <laughs> that run off from the rains. And I'm looking at these, these surfers surfing some epic waves. I'm like, oh, you are in like bacteria-infested water. And that's the image that, that came to mind. And, and James is like, no, don't swim in those waters. And it was weird. This, this Thursday, I, I had this Zoom call um, where we were talking about following Jesus. It was such a sweet, like, hour-long call of seeking first the kingdom. And there were some beautiful things said about the Lord is our shepherd. It just felt like such an enriching conversation. And then I drove home and I got on my little exercise bike in the garage and I got on YouTube for like 15 minutes. And I, and I wasn't like looking at porn or something like that, but it was like, I was just looking at, just scrolling. And I just felt after that hour of just beautiful, rich, my mind, I came out and my mind felt just more polluted. And I thought, what did I just do to my mind? I just, it wasn't horrible stuff, but it wasn't great. And it just was like, ah, I, I walked like, ah, no, that's not what my mind and my heart are made for. They're made for something pure and cleaner than that. Moral filth. <laughs> Things like sexual immorality, crude, crass language, just money-hungry materialism, or the triviality of some of the entertainment that we take in. Here's how, how Paul says it in Titus. Um, J, uh, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, to purify a people. And I was thinking, I, wanna, I was thinking, what keeps us from pursuing this purity more wholeheartedly? And I was thinking about our church, and you can come up to me and argue with afterwards, but I, I think there's a particular kind of, the, the, the church culture that we swim in, I was thinking there, there's something that I think sometimes keeps us from pursuing purity. Of course, we're drawn to these things that we shouldn't be. There's, there's that natural thing. But, but I, think, um, I think we kind of, our sort of church culture here and, and maybe people we associate with, I think there's this desire, and again, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, there's this, we wouldn't say it this way, but there's kind of a desire to be cool Christians. You know, like, I want to be a Christian, but I also want to be a Christian who's cool. You know, I, I want to be, uh, the last thing I want to be is like a goody-two-shoe, simple, naive 
Christian. I want to be kind of sophisticated, kind of edgy, um, you know, kind of in the know. And, um, and like there's this, yeah, I want to be, and we're a pretty cool group of people. I don't know if you know that, but you guys are pretty cool. I'm kind of cool. You guys are pretty cool. <laughs> but I think there's this like, I, I, I want to be that. There's this, oh, I just want to, and I don't want to be a legalist at all. I want to stay away from that. And I want to be cool. And so I want to watch the shows that everybody else is watching. I want to be able to, you know, offer those witty comments about the shows that people are watching. Um, I want to get a couple drinks in t- this afternoon, you know, as I, as I watch the Super Bowl. Um, a well-placed F-bomb, you know, it's always kind of a good thing for anybody. <laughs> that crass comment that's, that's just kind of, it's witty and it lands, right? That's, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. I was talking to a friend who has, has these friends. They say, their family says, we love Jesus, but we're naughty. I'm like, you love Jesus, but you're naughty. And they meant it as like, this is, that's their, def- they're defending themselves. Like, huh, you love Jesus, but like, how does that, how does that work? And I think, I think that there's, you know, Orange County church culture, I think there's, there's, there's that around us. And um, maybe that's not you, but I've seen a lot of people that I would identify as that. Um, I get that. I used to be much more that when I was in my 20s. Um, I wonder what we're missing out on spiritually if we're going about life that way. I wonder what depths of intimacy with God, what depths of clarity on God's purpose for our lives, um, depths of passion and joy and actually freedom and peace in our hearts and minds we miss out on from that. Again, not that we remove ourselves from the world, right? We, We are to be in the world, but we're not of the world. We're, we're, we're focused on this pure and simple devotion to Jesus. That's what I loved. I'll end with this. That's what I loved about Brooke's story, right? Brooke, she wasn't in sin, right? But there were things that were maybe contaminating is too strong a word, contaminating the water. And she thought, I, wanna, I want a clear, refreshing stream. I'm going to pull away from these things. I'm going to focus more on the Lord. And what happened? Surprise, surprise. She's gaining clarity. She's, she has a sense that she's being reminded of a call God gave her years ago as she kind of gets out of that, that stream into a pure stream. And, you know, it's an unfolding story. But I love that. And I wonder what that, if, for us to say, you know, screw cool. I don't need to be cool. That was not, that was, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. But, like, <laughs> that's sort of an oxymoron, you know. Like, but, like, I want Jesus. I just want Jesus. I, I want a pure and simple devotion to him. And whatever that looks like to other people, whatever. That doesn't matter to me. Um, I love that story that she was able to tell. So that is it. I'll put it up one last time. Here is the litmus test of, litmus test of true religion. And what I would invite you, you can't take in all three of those at one time, but maybe there's one of these today that um, you think, ah, oh, that's a word for me. That's a word from, from God's word to me today. I want to I want to think about that. I want, to, I want to take that before the Lord and see what God has for me. That's what I would invite us into this week. And I, especially as we're, uh, Mark's going to lead us in communion, we're going to uh, receive uh, from, the, from these tables. I'd invite you to take that on. So let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the tables. Well, Lord, um, I know that passages like this can trigger all sorts of things. May it trigger, first and foremost, a, a, a vision of who you are as our dad, that you, you are pure, that you care for the vulnerable, that you, your words 
are always true and right. Give us a fresh vision of you that just leads us to worship, leads us to hunger and thirst for you, and then would your spirit move in us so that we would start to look more and more and more like our dad the longer we spend time with you. That's what we want. So Lord, would your spirit move in us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.